I don't think it's just the residents of Ferguson who are horrified. It was people all over the country. They watched as hour after hour he lay face down in his own blood. Unfortunately, most of the public get their information about police officers from television. When the public is inundated with the negative the way that they have been and get very little of the positive, any negative action by one gets painted to all. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also another blog called Media Law. My co-host, J. Craig Williams, uh, is not with us today. As you know, he typically joins us from Southern California, where he writes a blog called May It Please the Court. And before we introduce today's topic, I'd like to just take one moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Online practice management software for lawyers available at www.goclio.com. Clio is about to be hosting their annual Clio Cloud Conference in Chicago on September 22nd. If you'd like to learn more about this great event, go to cliocloudconference.com. I can tell you I was there last year and it really was a a, a really remarkably uh, successful event. Just also a side note uh, that this program marks our 10th year of recording this podcast. We started this in September of 2005. As far as I know, we are the longest-running law-related podcast out there and uh, hope to keep going for many more years to go. So uh, today's today's show, we're going to be talking about the question of police brutality. Uh, we've heard a lot about this in the news lately. There have been de- demonstrations, looting, and rioting about what some are calling excessive police brutality. Uh, I suppose police brutality, by definition, is excessive. But has there been uh, a rise in police brutality? Is it being? Are we seeing more of it? Is it focused at particular minority groups or individuals of color? Uh, there have been many questions raised also about whether police departments are engaging in excessive use of force to enforce the law or whether they become overly militarized. So we're going to talk about this topic today with two guests. Uh, joining us, first of all, is Amy Goodman. Amy Goodman is the host and executive producer of the award-winning show, Democracy Now!, it airs on over 1,200 public television and radio stations worldwide. In addition, she has authored many best-selling books, including The Silenced Majority, Stories of Uprisings, Occupations, Resistance, and Hope. Amy Goodman is the recipient of prestigious awards, including the Right Livelihood Award, the James Aronson Award for Social Justice Reporting, and many others. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Amy Goodman. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Also joining us today is Sergeant Delroy Burton. Uh, Sergeant Burton is chairman for the D.C. Police Union and has been a police officer since August of 1994. He's worked many patrol assignments that required specialized training, including alcohol enforcement, pulse, Doppler, radar, and police motorcycles. 
He worked as a vice investigator prior to becoming a detective and then sergeant. He began working for the D.C. Police Union in 2006 and was elected union chairman in 2013, with his term beginning in April of 2014. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Sergeant Burton. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for being with us. And just to get the discussion started today, we're going to play a brief clip. This is a sound bite from a recent interview with truthout.org reporter Mike Ludwig, who spent several days in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, let's please play that clip. I think that we, we have an epidemic of, of excessive force by police and police overreaching their authority, not just in St. Louis, but across the country. Yeah, the tensions in Ferguson have been building for a really long time. The militarized police presence helped escalate that tension between the protesters and the police. I, I don't know if it would have reached the point of people dragging stuff in the street and throwing Molotov cocktails if the cops had not had a militarized presence to begin with. Well, referring, of course, to the shooting of Michael Brown that uh, in Ferguson, Missouri, which raised uh, significant uproar there and brought uh, national attention on that incident. Uh, Amy Goodman, what's your reaction to that clip? Uh, are you, do you think there's been a, a rise in excessive use of force by police departments? Are police becoming too militaristic, in your opinion? Well, these are all critical discussions we have to have in this country. I also was in Ferguson covering what was taking place. Um, everything from, uh, you know, we have to look back at what happened on August 9th when Michael Brown uh, ended up dead on the street and left there for four and a half hours as police were all around him. But so was the community. It was a residential neighborhood. And to the horrified um, community. They watched as hour after hour he lay face down in his own blood. Um, and then you move on from that and the protests and the response of the police. And I don't think it's just the residents of Ferguson who are horrified. It was people all over the country. In fact, um, you know, police chiefs as well uh, saying this was highly irregular. And I think the discussion is critical. Are the police in this country, one, the whole issue of police brutality and how are police held accountable? It does no policeman good in this country when there are so-called bad apples because it makes, uh, you know, it contaminates everyone. I think that good police officers, I'm speaking to you from New York City, good police officers all over the country um, care about community. And they are deeply concerned, like any of us in our own communities, about those that are not uh, representing real law and order. And that second issue, the issue of the militarization of police, uh, I'm surprised it's taken so long for us to discuss this issue. We've seen it for a long time in the streets, but you have this trend as the U.S. has been engaged in wars abroad from Iraq to Afghanistan for the Pentagon to um, recycle their equipment, right? It comes home and they start giving it to uh, towns, villages, cities all over the country, which makes the police forces of our country look like an occupying force. And that is a very serious issue. You know, we have a law in the United States called Posse Comitatus where we accept, and this isn't any political persuasion. I think people across the political spectrum 
accept this law that says that soldiers shouldn't be marching down the streets of the United States. And I think the way authorities have gotten around this is by militarizing the police. And that is a very big problem and exacerbates uh, heated situations like we see in Ferguson. Well, let me hear from Sergeant Burton and uh, ask for your reaction to that soundbite that we just played. Uh, what's, what's, what's your opinion on these issues? Well, you know, the characterization that there is an epidemic of excessive force being used by police departments around the country, I, I don't accept that characterization that was used in the soundbite. Are there instances of uh, police brutality and excessive force? Absolutely they are, and they should be appropriately investigated. And when police officers are found to have violated their oath and done something inappropriate, they should be punished in accordance with what the rules governing that jurisdiction say they, how they should be punished. But to characterize it as a, uh, an epidemic, I think, does a disservice to all police officers all across the country. Uh, some other parts of his comments I found a little bit odd also is that he blames the police department uh, the equipment that they use as to why the riots, uh, part of the rioting happened in Ferguson. And I wasn't there, so I, I can't say that uh, uniforms or what they wore had something to do with it. But if you look historically when we had riots, we had one here in Washington, D.C. back in uh, 1989, it was the Mount Pleasant riots. I'm, I'm sorry, 1991. Police weren't wearing that kind of equipment. The, the riots in Miami, Overtown, uh, 1982, 1989. Uh, the riots in Seattle during the World Trade Organization meetings in 1999, the uniform that those officers were wearing had nothing to do with it. What I think some of the things that Ms. Goodman pointed out is that you had an underlying set of tension between the community, all those communities that I just discussed, with their government and particularly with the police department. And then you had a specific incident that occurred that sparked the anger of the community and it boiled over into violence. So uh, the epidemic of police uh, excessive force I don't accept, and the premise that militarization is the reason I also do not accept. Now, I will say police are using a lot more military equipment. That's true. However, remember, and, and I think uh, Ms. Goodman pointed to this very well, the purpose of the police department and the purpose of the military are completely different. Um, I happen to have both feet in, in both sides. I'm a policeman, and I spent 20 years in the Marine Corps, half of it in the reserves and, and half on active duty. And my job as a policeman is to preserve the peace, arrest violators of the law, protect people's property. And my job as a Marine was to seek out, close with, and destroy the enemy. And I don't see my community as an enemy. So I'm not going to seek them out, destroy them. I, you know, so the, the, the two are completely different. And when we start characterizing police officers that way, it sets people on the mindset that these guys are coming into my community and they are my enemy. And then you see the response, as, as any community would, when the enemy invades. So I think, you know, the rhetoric that we use and the descriptions that we use those words have an impact, and when things boil over, it really, really turns sour for those of us in uniform. Well, well but these were these were driven in part by the visual, at least in the Ferguson case. I mean, we were we were getting the visuals on the TV news of of this you know military style equipment, heavy uh, armored equipment being used in the streets there. So you know it it, it went beyond rhetoric. That that was after. The things that Ms. Goodman described about the, the incident that, that, that took Mr. Brown's life, that everything that inflamed that community, the fact that he was killed, 
their perception of how he was treated after he was killed, and everything else that preceded that incident. It all boiled over, and when it all boiled over, the police responded. Did they respond as an occupying military force? Did they come through and start shooting people, uh, which is what an army does? But the police, I think, even after things exploded, uh, I think they exercised uh, significant restraint. Yep. Well, in the case of Ferguson, I would hate to see what um, excessive force was if that was restraint. And I, unfortunately, I think we saw a serious excessive force. I was uh, talking to a minister uh, at a local church. She was shot in the stomach with a rubber bullet. She was there to keep peace. I mean, we see the video. And I think it's interesting that Sergeant Burton talked about my community, saying the words my community. I think, Sergeant Burton, you feel differently about your community. You're making a very critical distinction between being, you know, uh, a Marine and then being a police officer in these streets. I dare say that many of the officers in Ferguson would not have talked about, quote, my community, because they don't see it as their community. It is clearly, um, look at the racial divide there. You have a community that very much transitioned from a largely white community decades ago to an overwhelmingly black community. But the police force does not reflect that at all. The white power structure in Ferguson does not reflect that at all. You know, the school board, the city council, uh, the just the police force itself, there were 53 police officers in the Ferguson City um, Police Department. Only three of them were officers of color. Um, this is a very big problem. And then you add to that uh, the APCs, the armored personnel carrier. And the reason we see any of this is because of video. And that was so important. Finally, you had a number of days later with an officer with an automatic weapon pointing it at the crowd because it was videoed. Uh, he ends up being suspended. But I think that was very rare in Ferguson. Well, that that begs the question. I mean, we again, we're hearing a lot of uh, talk about the idea that there has been an increase in violent incidents involving police or police brutality. Uh, is that in part attributable to social media, to the availability of uh, of cameras on everyone's phone, to the, to the fact that that it's it's easier to capture this stuff as it's happening. I mean, it, do we have any evidence that there that this is really happening any more than it ever has, or or are we just learning about it more frequently. I don't know if it's happening any more than it ever has. I think as with a lot of stuff uh, that happens when you when you have the ability for technology to, to get you more information, you see it more frequently. So the perception could be that it's happening more frequently because we now have some more, uh, we have more video evidence of interactions between police officers and the citizens that we're supposed to protect. And so it could be viewed like there's more. I don't, I don't necessarily believe there's more. I don't think the, the statistics that are available say that there's more, but people are much more aware of it because of the, everyone that's walking around now is a potential uh, news camera person because they can capture images of all the interactions with police officers and citizens, either on cell phone cameras, on building security cameras, on cameras installed by police themselves, uh, traffic cameras. So, so the ability to, to capture those images make it appear that there, there may be more. I don't necessarily think the statistics bear out that there are more. 
Amy Goodman, what about you? I mean, the is there issue any... of video cameras is so important because, you know, I flew right from Ferguson, Missouri, uh, to uh, Staten Island uh, because in Staten Island there was a major protest against the uh, illegal police chokehold that killed Eric Garner. And that happened on July 17th, but the massive protest took place well, right in the midst of the protests in Ferguson. There were thousands of people who were the, there. Now, the reason we know what happened on July 17th is because a young man just feet away had his cell phone, and he filmed the police taking this 43-year-old African-American father of six down in this illegal police chokehold. The police report at the time did not say anything about a chokehold. The Patrolman's Benevolent Association disputed it, the union here in New York. But the video showed it clearly so much so that the police chief, uh, Bill Bratton, held a news conference right afterwards and said, we have to retrain our police force from the bottom up. You saw very clearly this man taken down from behind, you know, uh, uh, the chokehold put on him. He is brought down to the ground. And 11 times you hear him very clearly in this video saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. It's terribly frightening. The reason we know what happened is because there was that video. Now, this is a very important issue. Uh, And there are lawsuits and laws around the country that are being passed and also filed around the issue of whether civilians can film police. Uh, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult. In fact, in this case in Staten Island, No sooner have the coroner ruled the death of Mr. Garner a homicide that Ramsey Orta, the young man who filmed what happened to Garner, was arrested. No police officer was arrested, but the guy who filmed was arrested. And this is bringing up very important issues on a different issue. He was arrested. But, you know, many felt is that... Yes, yes, no, but let me make this point. He was arrested for an old uh, weapons charge, but it was he was arrested after this was this case was ruled a homicide. Now, what we had on Democracy Now was a, a legal secretary, a woman who had just filed a suit a few days before Garner was killed. She was a legal secretary, came home from work on the Upper West Side of New York, and she started filming what she saw as a police interaction. Her name was interestingly Goodman, like my own, but. Um, she's filming, and before she knows it, she was arrested and held for 24 hours. Now, I think we have to have a discussion around the country. Are, what are the rights of civilians uh, to film police interactions? And that's a very important discussion to have. Yeah, we, right we, around we've, the- we've, we've had a ruling on that issue in Massachusetts, where I am, because that, that has happened, and the First Circuit here has ruled that citizens do have a right to film uh, police interaction. I, I, need to just, uh, I need to just take a break uh, right here. We're just going to hear a short word from our sponsor. Please stay with us. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. 
And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi, and uh, I'm joined today by two guests, uh, Amy Goodman, uh, host and executive producer of the award-winning show Democracy Now!, and Sergeant Delroy Burton, chairman for the D.C. Police Union. And we're talking about whether there's been uh, an increase in in police brutality in this country. And I want to just play uh, another clip here. Uh, This one is a short audio clip from Patrick Lynch, president of the Patrolman's Benevolent Association of New York City. Let's roll that. There's an attitude on our city streets today that it is acceptable to resist arrest. That attitude is a direct result of the lack of respect for law enforcement, resulting from the slanderous, insulting, and unjust manner in which police officers are being portrayed by race baiters, politicians, pundits, and even our elected officials. It's a serious crime, and it must be treated that way by all. New York City police officers have every right to expect to go home safely and without injury at the end of their tour. It is outrageously insulting to all police officers to say that we go out on our streets to choke people of color. Sergeant Burton, your uh, reaction to that clip? Well, a lot of my members and a lot of police officers that I know uh, identify with what uh, Mr. Lynch is saying in terms of the way police officers are portrayed. Uh, unfortunately, most of the public get their information about police officers from television and television programs that depict what they believe police work is and how we do our work. And that unrealistic portrayal clouds how they view when something happens. And when something controversial happens, then, you know, all of those things come bubbling to the surface and we're all either despicable uh, individuals as the, the stuff that Mr. Lynch was complaining about, or it, it, the one end of the spectrum, we're either heroes or we're despicable on the other end. And, you know, the in-between where you have average people doing a very difficult job, sometimes with very serious consequences, either injury to themselves or death, and it's really, really hard. And what he says about resisting arrest is is true. It's even if a policeman is doing something improper, if the arrest is illegal and unconstitutional, you know, what I would recommend to the public, and, and, and I've done this to individuals in my community, is listen, the place to have the war with that patrolman is not on the street because it's a losing proposition. You, you'll end up getting arrested. The charges will probably be dismissed later on, but the appropriate thing to do is to cooperate with that arrest and then take the appropriate action because there are a number of ways to battle uh, or to fight against an inappropriate arrest, particularly here in Washington, D.C. We have the Office of Police Complaints. Uh, there's the Internal Affairs Division. Uh, they can take civil action. And there are just a number of ways to deal with that particular individual. And, and our department is very responsive to dealing with those types of complaints. And as a union, we don't advocate that type of behavior. 
but we would certainly advise anybody that if, if someone is going to arrest you and they tell you that you're under arrest, the best course of action is to cooperate, and then if the policeman did something wrong, use those avenues to try to, to get the situation resolved. But the fight with the policeman on the street is going to end up with a bad result. Of course, the problem with that, I mean, that sounds reasonable, except in the case, for example, of Mr. Eric Garner, since we all saw it on videotape, is he did not have that chance afterwards to challenge his own arrest. He was yeah, but he fought with the police officers, Miss Miss Goodman. He, if he you look at my, 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 that my was point. hardly the. I mean, if you look at the video, he is brought down in that chokehold because he so did not fast. comply. Because he, he did not comply with the policeman's instructions. Had he, he was, complied, uh, just a moment, please. The issue here and the question was about resisting arrest and the way and, and, and the way people are are portrayed and the way police are portrayed. Now, we can have all the discussions we want about the way police are portrayed, and, but in terms of not complying with the instructions of the police officer to put your hands behind your back, you're under arrest, and then a physical altercation ensues, the resisting of the arrest causes the problem to get out of control, which, which is something we don't want to do. We don't want it to get out of control. We want to maintain control of that situation. I think he was very surprised because the police officer came up from behind him and he had his hands up and he was backing up against a, a store. I was just at that store, a beauty spa in Staten Island saying, you're going to arrest me? Um, you know, I can speak from my own personal experience, and this goes to another issue, but this is how journalists are treated by police, that the Republican convention in St. Paul the first day in 2008, we were covering the protests outside. And that's always a tough situation. You know, there are thousands of people. They were protesting against the war in Iraq at the time. It would, they protested at the Denver convention uh, and then in St. Paul, and we were just covering it. Um, I was on the convention floor interviewing delegates, but I got a call that two of my colleagues, a very peaceful uh, protest was taking place outside, had been arrested by police. I was completely shocked. And they said, I better get to the site. They had also been beaten, they said. So I came off the floor of the convention. I raced over to the corner. I was told, you know, I didn't know this area. And there was a line of riot police officers. They had fully contained the area. And I went up to an officer and I said, I'd like to speak to your commander. We have two of our reporters who apparently were arrested, and I need to have them released. It wasn't seconds before they twisted my hands behind my back, threw me through the police line, and arrested me. Now, in my case, uh, fortunately, this was videotaped by many journalists. Uh, ultimately, you know, as Sergeant Burton was saying, you have to deal with the arrest, and then afterwards you have to, you know, you have to contend with it. We had to do our work, and that's very hard for journalists. More than 40 of them were arrested at the convention, the Republican convention that week. It's very tough to do your work when you're in a jail cell. But we sued the St. Paul police and the Minneapolis police because there were many levels of police as well as the Secret Service who were working with them, and we ultimately won a major settlement. But the videotape showed at the deposition uh, when I came up to the police officer and they contended I hurled myself through the line. Um, the lawyer said to him, show where she hurled. We see where she stopped and said, officer, can I speak to your commanding officer? You show us on the videotape where she moved from that place. And at that point, you know, when obviously confronted with videotape, the officer said, I guess I was mistaken. In, in preparing for the show, I, I came across a U.S. Department of Justice uh, study that 
looked at, talked to police officers. Now, this was from 2000, so it's a little bit old, but this study said that 84% of police officers said that they had seen another officer use more force than necessary in making an arrest. And we, we, one of the things the public hears a lot about with police officers is there is this sort of code of silence, as they talk about it, that, that police officers protect each other in these circumstances. Sergeant Burton, what do you say about that? How, what are police departments doing to ensure that police officers know what level of force is appropriate, know how to use force, and, and then are made accountable when they do use excessive force? One of the things that is, is bothersome to me as a policeman is that Police officers are always categorized the way that Ms. 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 Goodman just did, you know, how police treat journalists. It's how those police officers in that particular situation treated you and your colleagues. And I can't speak to it because I wasn't there. But all the police officers didn't do that. And when we categorize police officers that way, any negative action by one gets painted to all. So we, we need to be very careful when we do those types of things. As to what training you get, the, the larger the police department, you tend to have very, very good training. Here in Washington, D.C., uh, we, we use the use of force continuum. There are statutory limits on the types of techniques that we can use. And we are taught that you don't have to necessarily meet the level of force that uh, uh, at the level that you're, you're facing. You can go one step above. But the, the rule generally is the minimum amount of force necessary to affect the arrest. And one of the things we teach and we, we harp on all the time is that abuse begins where resistance ends. So if the person is not resisting and you're still applying force, that's unnecessary and unneeded force. And the police department here disciplines quite heavily for uh, uses of excessive force. We have an independent agency called the Office of Police Complaints that's empowered to investigate allegations of excessive force. And that's something we take seriously. Officers have the responsibility under D.C. law to, to report that kind of stuff. For example, if, if I witness someone uh, engaging in, in excessive force or what would be a criminal act, and I don't act to either place that person under arrest or report that person. I've just violated the law here in D.C. So I think, unfortunately, it's not uniform across all of policing. Uh, that is true. But uh, the larger the agency, you tend to have much better training, more consistent training. And if, in areas, in rural areas or in small police departments, they generally are all have a consortium for, for training where if it's a 20-man uh, police force, 50-man police force, the, the larger agency is responsible for training all of the police officers in that region through uh, collaborative effort. So, you know, one of the things that, that would probably be more helpful is consistent refresher training and, and consistent reinforcement, not only of the policy, but of those physical skills, because skills deteriorate. And when you first come out of the police academy, you're very good with most of those skills. You're in very, very good shape. But over time, as you go through your career, while they, in a lot of places you're reminded of the policy, the reinforcement of those physical skills is not part of the ongoing training. And so those skills tend to deteriorate. And, and if I would make any recommendation to, to all those police officers out there and, and to agencies that are looking to reform their policies, is that they add the, the, the repetition of the physical skill component to their reinforcement of their policy, because that makes a very, very big difference in the application of force. 
Well, let me, Amy, what about you? From you, you've clearly seen instances where it, it's looked to you that the the police were misusing their arrest power or or were using too much force. What, what should be done about this? Are there policy measures that should be implemented? Is, is this something that has to be handled on a local police by department by police department basis, or, or, or how should we be responding to this? Well, you know, at the protest in Staten Island that I was covering, there was an interesting poster that people were holding. It said, uh, support NYPD, that's the New York Police Department, support NYPD and police brutality. And I would dare say that Sergeant Burton would agree with that, that excessive force threatens police departments as well, not just the community, because it does make all police officers their job more difficult. Because when people are afraid of the police, it is very hard to have a constructive relationship. Um, On the issue of policy, I think where we started, Bob, the issue of the militarization of police is one that I think we agree in a civilian society, uh, we have to reassess what police departments are getting. On the issue of uh, police monitoring police, there is a very interesting debate to be had around this issue of videoing, not only civilians videoing police, but whether police departments uh, should have their own video cams. You know, I understand that the Ferguson Police Department was just given by two private companies cameras that they were armed with this past weekend. Um, uh, But that is very important to have, you know, to have police work documented and to understand that police officers are peace officers. They're there to keep the peace. And it is also very important that journalists not be viewed by the police as their opponents. You know, I'll cover a protest in New York and police officers will will come over to me and say, hey, thanks for being here. Because it also protects them. There are many, many good conscientious police officers who are there because it's their community as well. And they know it doesn't help when officers use excessive force. But it's so important that journalists be allowed to function freely uh, to ensure that, you know, dissent can be expressed without people being afraid, because I really do think dissent is what will save democracy. Go ahead. In terms of, of, of journalists and doing their job, a big part of the issue is the sensational story gets covered. It always has. It probably always will. But the mundane day-to-day operations and the good work of police officers are not going to be on the news night after night after night like something as controversial as Ferguson or the death of the, the gentleman in New York. So it's, it's an uneven coverage and information about what we do as police officers. So when the public is inundated with the negative the way that they have been and get very little of the positive, it, it changes their view, and it's, I think, in a negative way. And I, I don't know if that's, that's helpful. All right, we are just about out of time, and I do like to give each of you an opportunity to have a share a closing thought on this topic and uh, also uh, invite you to let our listeners know how they can follow up with you if they'd like to do that. So, uh, Amy, let's start with you. Well, I encourage people to go to democracynow.org. It's our website, and we're a daily global public news hour, and we discuss these issues every day. And I think that's what is absolutely critical. We clearly need new policies. We need new laws. There needs to be new relationships and communities between police and civilians. 
And it's going to happen, I mean, in a democratic society, it has to be a very vigorous discussion that includes all sides. Thank you very much. Sergeant, go ahead. I can be reached at uh, the DCPoliceUnion.com or uh, www.crimedc.com. That's our website that distributes information about crime in Washington, D.C., or my, uh, uh, my office at the uh, D.C. Police Union, uh, 202-548-8300. And I, I concur with some of what Amy says in terms of the discussion. I think one of the failures of policing is that we haven't done a very good job of explaining to people how we do what, what we do and why we do it. So I would encourage everybody out there not to be afraid of their police departments, to engage and get involved because we serve you. And the more you know, the more you know about what we do and how we do it and why we do it, the easier it will be for us to do our jobs and the easier it will be for the public to understand why something happened, uh, the techniques that were being used. So information is the key. Engagement is the key. Maybe some legislative changes are necessary, but if the conversation has to be had, and I don't think... We need to try to have it when something controversial has happened because emotions are through the roof. We have to have that conversation after the emotions subside so we can look at it and make the, the decisions and the right types of changes. Well, good comments from, from both of you. I, I, I should note that uh, many, many years ago in my career, I was a, a labor union attorney who represented police unions, uh, and I represented a number of police officers, and I, I certainly uh, believe that the vast majority of police officers out there are, as, as Amy said, conscientious, uh, concerned uh, members of their communities. Uh, and, uh, you know, whether this is a problem uh, that's, that's on the rise, whether uh, we're just more aware of it, I'm not sure what the answer is. But I really appreciate uh, both of you having uh, joined us today and shared your insights and observations about this. So thanks a lot to both of you for being with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks. And that wraps up this episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. We will be back again in two weeks with another program. Thanks for joining us. And remember, when you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.